Aldo Leopold wrote that uh, once you start learning about ecology, you see a world of wounds, right? And I think we need to get people to to see that. Um, and that's part of the the program, I think, in what would the education be like in, a, in an eco-social society. But I think it's something we need to cultivate now. And I think this is also re- related to the Promethean problem, where socialists think, you know, capitalist domination of nature is bad, but we'll have like a socialist domination of nature, where we'll like rationally regulate how much we take. We'll, we'll regulate this um, metabolism between uh, humanity and nature. And the world will look something like the Netherlands, where it's like all gardens and all parks and you know these cute little farms and windmills and all that. And I taught a class there at the Sandberg Institute, and I was trying to lead the students to see that uh, this goal of a socialist, a good mastery, is also very flawed, right? If the world looked like uh, Holland, we would have a huge biodiversity <laughs> crisis, right? I mean, they uh, they have no wilderness there whatsoever. They're missing many important species. They have uh, uh, a livestock industry that is destroying their rivers and, and waterways. Uh, it's huge nitrogen crisis and many other problems. And to realize that the goal cannot be mastery, but this uh, conscious release, this conscious letting go of control we have to decide how much we're going to let nature be wild. And I found it interesting that the word for wild comes from this old English word of will, right? The idea that people saw uh, the wilderness as uh, a self-willed nature, right? And I think we need to think, how can we let the world have its own its own desire, its own path? as well. And it's a, it's a contradiction in a way of us choosing to, and consciously choosing to let go of conscious control. This is a, a hard thing to do. The question of actually, you know, how do we get there? Like, what are the politics for that? I mean, when we wrote this book, we were just like two, two guys locked down during a pandemic, having some fun in a bleak world. And if no one read the book, it wouldn't matter very much. And it would seem presumptuous to be like, here are these uh, goals for the next 20 years that will lead to a socialist revolution. I mean, I I can't say that. But the response has been uh, very gratifying. We've been hearing from many people who are very interested in in the project. And I think we can begin to think about uh, building upon this, right? And then in Spain, it's been very exciting. I mean, again, Alberto Garzon has been pushing this anti-meat uh, campaign, and he's been trying to build this half a socialist coalition in, in terms of animal rights people, environmentalists, and socialists, right? And to have his own party think about nature in a, a different way from the old Stalinist, uh, you know, the old uh, classical socialist way. So, but we need many people like Garzon, we need many politicians, we need many people who are connected uh, to intellectuals and to activists as well as political parties. And it, we, ha- we have to remember that this won't happen within a couple of years. I think people joined Extinction Rebellion thinking, well, this, this this succeeds in the next six months or the next couple of years, that will be great. But if it doesn't, I'll get burnt out. And I can understand activist burnout, but we also have to realize it took the neoliberals many decades of organizing before they had their first successes. And then 
after their first successes, they had many conflicts and they had to defeat, let's say, striking miners in Britain, which almost took down Thatcher and many other problems. Uh, and they were constantly organizing and, and fighting off these threats. And we have to have our own long-term campaign to do, to organize and change people's minds about things as well, and to also realize what we need. Because when you know Hayek and these others started, they didn't know what neoliberalism was. They didn't know what their endpoint was. They had to build that up. Uh, the thing is, we should have done all this 35 years ago. You know, after the end of socialism in Eastern Europe, and also the defeat of uh, environmentalists after this Malthusian moment, um, then they should have thought, okay, what is environmentalism? You know, what is socialism? And instead, we just languished in defeat and felt bad for ourselves. And, uh, and we also were afraid to put forward positive propo uh, proposals because maybe they would seem authoritarian or maybe they would seem uh, too naive or something like this. And therefore, we withheld uh, critique. But we can't continue doing that. Otherwise, neoliberals are just going to win forever or fascists will win. Right, and I always say, you know, what would neoliberals do? Right, that's what I ask myself. And I think it would be so lovely if we had all these ideas and organization, and our enemies felt bad for themselves and said, "Well, we're neoliberals, but we can't put forth what it means to be a neoliberal. We can't tell you what a neoliberal society looks like. We will, we will just criticize the socialists. It'd be excellent to have enemies like that. Um, so there's no reason why we should be so." so weak, actually. Half of it is our own fault. I'm not in the art world, really. Uh, I do like art. My partner's an artist, and don't get me wrong. It's been interesting that the book has been taken up mainly by the Spanish-speaking world, I would say, with a lot of interest, um, and uh, design people. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, it, it's been strange to see those groups rather than say scientists or environmentalists or conservationists and there's been some interest from animal rights people i would it's also funny where i think vegans can be convinced of socialism but it's very hard to convince socialists of veganism you think you know it should be the other way around one thing we're working on now is is you're asking about games was i might work with a, a board game designer and uh and he was very nice um, and he said, maybe we could do something based on the book. But for me, I kind of want to do something different. And I was thinking about making it a revolutionary game. Because the, the question we get all the time is like, how does this happen, right? And I think maybe making a game where you have to <laughs> overthrow a capitalist state or you have to manage a transition from a, 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 a market society to a, a planned society, that could be an interesting problem to think through with a game. And that's kind of relating to what we were, we were talking about before in terms of, you know, shell scenario planning or, you know, RAND or these like Soviet uh, um, role playing managing uh, techniques and uh, put them all in together. Because I, I, it's, it's a problem that, you know, the only socialist democracy we really have seen has been either in these very short-lived uh, Soviets after World War One or Chile in the 70s. And the fact, of course, it was overthrown is, is disconcerting. But also, and Chile was a, you know, a rich country in South America, but no, no one has actually seen a, a revolution in a core industrial country, such as like Germany or uh, um, 
or the U.S. and all that. So like imagining what that looks like. And I think about, you know, Gramsci, where he was saying, not only do, do these like bourgeois, you know, uh, core states, they not only have great hegemony culturally, but they also just have as much police force or more than these um, uh, poor, more authoritarian societies, right? Because I mean, people, I think people want to blow up pipelines. They've all read Andreas's book, but how many people want to spend 20 years in jail? <laughs> Right, it's uh, it's a problem. It's weird to read about older activist histories. People like Daniel Ellsberg, uh, did I say that right? I mean, the the Pentagon Papers uh, fellow. I mean, he leaked those documents and he didn't go to jail, right? Or you know, Dave Foreman, that rewilder I was talking about, who has unfortunately really bad politics. Uh, he wrote a book that was basically a, a terrorism, an eco-terrorism guide, like how to make bombs and all that. You can still find it on the internet. And he didn't. He went to court, but he didn't go to jail either. And there's already a lot of pressure on the left, and we've done so little. Uh, for example, I don't know if you, you probably know this, but the editor of La Fabrique, who publishes like Andreas Mom's stuff, the French uh, radical press, the editor got arrested when he went to. London just a few months ago. So I think once we actually start doing some things in terms of eco-socialist uh, uh, actions, it's going to be extremely repressive. And that's what we saw with the Earth Liberation Front. They took them more seriously as a threat than they took neo-Nazis or Islamic terrorists, right? And that's one thing that I like about the animal rights movement is that they're the crazies, right, who want to sabotage things all the time. They're always... Uh, messing things up, they're always breaking into factory farms or slaughterhouses and all that. They're crazy, you know. <laughs> so when Andreas wrote his book, uh, to me, it's like, yeah, how did you not include the animal rights movement? If you bring them on board and part of this broader coalition, they'll be our spear point, you know, and we could get a lot more shit done, I think. But they need to feel welcomed and and recognized in terms of their concerns as well, because we're all too chicken shit to actually you know, blow things up. I would see some crazy vegans around. Uh, another activist group, I forget where it was, they just poured cement into the holes so people couldn't play golf. <laughs> Which I also like, oh, I hate golf so much. You know, I wrote um, uh, a very unpopular uh, op-ed about why people shouldn't own pets. So I have many cranky positions. So uh, I, I made my own critique of, of pet ownership. And I actually came to that because of bird watching, right? Because people with, with animals do not care about other animals, as in like having an animal doesn't necessarily lead to empathy for other animals, but actually increases your own solipsism, your own selfishness, actually. And uh, you know, lots of birds suffer from from pets, um, and also I think it's it's incredibly weird to have such a unfree animal in your control versus like this beauty of this autonomous, you know, wild animal that I can see. But another thing I want to write about is I would love to write an op-ed against golf. <laughs> so uh, I come from a family of golfers, and uh, uh, I guess my conservative background and. Uh, it's such an awful, stupid hobby. And the fact that it still exists during a moment like now is insane. And we should be turning all these into rewilded parks or into uh, urban farms and, and all that. And the fact that people think that they can have this kind of waste and this, this, this excess when people are doing so badly is just disgusting.
let alone having a merger between a very evil, stupid American organization and a Saudi-backed golf league. It's just building golf courses in Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's many things I, I want to write about. <laughs> many unpopular opinions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just got tired of reading critique. You know, it's like um, we know things are really bad. We know capitalism sucks. We know the environmental crisis is bad. And then, you know, when we were writing this book, it was kind of soon after the IPCC saying we have only 12 years and blah, blah, blah uh, to stay within 1.5 degrees. And I was thinking, like, what are we waiting for? Like, fascism is on the march, you know. Uh, when are we going to actually propose a serious positive program? Uh, <laughs> how much worse does it need to get before we do that? And the idea was a bit like what, what Toni Morrison says, like, you write the book you wish you could read. So we started working on, on, that, on that project. It's funny where I think people like talking about Gaia, but I wonder how many people have actually read the book Gaia by Lovelock, because if you read it, it's actually quite a conservative book. And he says certain things such as, well, you know, this acid rain problem, uh, you know, I don't think it's it's so bad and, and nature will heal itself. Or he also says, uh, because we burn fossil fuels, that heats up the world, but then it also produces like soot, which will act as an aerosol, which will cool the, the earth as well. So climate change isn't a, a big issue. And people have to remember that he was an independent inventor, but he often worked for oil companies, right? I mean, there's um, uh, er, uh, Leah Aronofsky at, um, at Columbia University wrote a very nice essay in Critical Inquiry about uh, Lovelock and his relationship to the Shell Oil Company called Gas Guzzling Gaia, which is a very lovely name. But uh, I think I think the there is this sense of um, the Earth system being this functioning, stabilized entity uh, as a way to excuse uh, what we're doing. And I think we have to be critical of the Earth system sciences as well, right? We can't just, it's not a matter of we'll just read the science and we'll follow the science and we'll know what to do. I mean, we need to have socialist scientists, we need to have radical scientists, but we also need to have enough scientific literacy in the general public to be able to engage in these debates. Think about the fact that someone like Kreutzen, who came up with the term Anthropocene, and also was important for discovering the ozone hole um, in the 1980s, he's the one that brought geoengineering in from the cold in 2006. He wrote this essay saying, well, we're not doing enough work to actually stop uh, uh, global warming, so we need to think seriously about this. And before that, people did not want to touch geoengineering, but because he was so famous and so respected, it got a, a Philip after that. Uh, and he could have said the same thing about, um, about veganism. He said, he could have said, if we got rid of the livestock industry, it would cool down the earth in this way, and we could do this, and it's you know relatively easy and all that. But because he saw politics in this way, he didn't do that. Similarly, uh, these earth system scientists, they believe that a switch from coal to methane, or what people call natural gas, that would also help to cool the climate. And they had to ignore that methane um, you know, fracking and, and uh, extraction and pipelines and all that cause a lot of, um, uh, a lot of illness in areas nearby. 
and of course, it also doesn't work because there's a lot more leakage than people realize, and then it heats up atmosphere. But they were pushing for this, and even you know, not only scientists but also people in the Sierra Club in the United States, this big environmental group, they were pushing for methane as a substitute, as like a bridge fuel, but as is idiotic, right? So I mean, this is where. Uh, we need to push scientists to imagine a, a, an array of futures, and we need to be literate enough uh, in the science to begin to imagine and push scientists to to think about these things as well and to participate in those kinds of, of plans. You know, this is a contentious issue amongst animal rights people, and I have some friends that also don't like the idea of indigenous hunting. Um, I my, my position is that indigenous hunting didn't get us into this mess. Um, and indigenous people have suffered a huge amount, and one has to respect their cultures, which have obviously taken a battering over the last few hundred years. Uh, there was an interesting case in Alaska, I think it was in the 1970s or 80s, and there was a debate about, uh, about indigenous whaling, about how many whales they were killing a year. And the scientists thought that they were taking too many whales and the whale population was going to decline. And then the indigenous people said, no, actually, there are more whales than you think. And you know, we, we know this area and it will be fine. And it turns out the indigenous people were correct, actually. There were more whales and they were not over harvesting the whales. Um, so I think we need to uh, re respect indigenous knowledge and also rely on uh, indigenous allies as part of a broader coalition. I mean, I'm Canadian. The only people who actually win any kind of political fights at all are indigenous people. And environmentalists don't stand a chance unless they have indigenous allies. And that's true for most of the world, uh, to be sure. And one has to also remember that indigenous uh, territories, they have not only more biodiversity than nature parks, but they also sequester more carbon. But not that one needs to have utilitarian arguments uh, for these things. I, I do find it annoying when omnivores are using indigenous people as like a shield for their own meat eating. Because I'm like, you know, you're not, you're not a hunter-gatherer or something like this. Like you go to uh, Whole Foods or you go to some grocery store nearby, like give me a break, right? And then they also are ignoring that indigenous people are fighting uh, ranchers and large meat companies in many parts of the world, and they're being killed by uh, people working for these companies. Like, who's killing all the indigenous activists in, in Brazil, for instance? I mean, it's meat companies, right? So the fact that people then turn the argument for veganism around saying, actually, you're anti-indigenous, and and uh, if you love indigenous people, you would, you would eat steak. I mean, it's the most idiotic thing. It drives me crazy. You know, I was reading... Uh, some of Marx's ethnographic notebooks. And he actually talks about the Iroquois uh, in Canada and their democratic practices in the Longhouse and, and all that. Um, I'm also reading my friend's book, Astra Taylor. She's an activist and also a filmmaker. She made a film on Zizek, for instance. Um, and she wrote a book on democracy. And, and there she's interested, a bit like Graeber, in how indigenous uh, equality, political equality, uh, influenced Europeans uh, during contact several hundred years ago and then led to enlightenment uh, ideas. So I think that will, be, that will be in there. But the question, I suppose, that I would ask 
is we need to have models of democracy on a large enough scale. And I, I'm not an expert on indigenous political governance, but uh, even the Iroquois nation is like several thousand people. It's not a very large society. And something like Athens, I think people assume was a face-to-face -face society with a city-state. It actually was a quarter of a million people. And, uh, and of course, of those, only half of them are free and half of them are men and so forth. But uh, it still was not a face-to-face -face society. It still was a fairly anonymous society. And they could make direct democracy work. And I think we need to be thinking about this large scale and how do we, because uh, we have to go from the local to the, the planetary. And um, that's definitely part of it. But I also would say about indigenous knowledge is that we definitely need to uh, draw on and learn uh, a great deal from it. There was an exhibition uh, in Berlin that I saw recently and it was about how indigenous people would, um, in, in, I believe it was in, in Central America, they would actually look at the shape of bird nests every year and that would tell them about certain weather conditions that were likely for that year. Or how ants would act as in if ants actually got out of their nest, that meant a big rain uh, fall was coming soon. And uh, there are scientists now who are talking to indigenous people to see them as a certain kind of like sentinel apparatus to understand changes in, in the landscape. But I'm not I'm not an expert on, on this kind of stuff. Yeah.